Biblical Worldview 101 and using the notes that most of you have because you've been here in previous weeks, you've been bringing your notebook back, but you may have forgotten it or this may be your first time. In either case, we have some extra sets of notes. So Larry has some and Kevin, you, you have a copy? <laughs> He's already given away a few. You need one back here, right back here in the very back. So if you need one, get Larry's attention. And we'll look at page 20. And let me remind you of some things that are coming up tonight at 4.30 is our second of two servants' seminars. And those are three and a half hour with dinner in between seminars that we do every year at this time to get everybody on the same page for what it is we want to accomplish for the coming year. So it's always a very important time for our church membership. We had a large group for the first one last week, and uh, a number of you have registered for our seminar for tonight. They're always important, but uh, they're especially important this year because with the acquisition of this building that we call our ministry center, it allows us the opportunity to do some things uh, as a church that we've not been able to do in the past. So we want to talk about some of those tonight at our servant seminar. So if you uh, did not attend the one last week, then I would encourage you to attend tonight. If you did not register, all that means is you may not get fed tonight, as Pastor Matt was saying. We use the registration to determine as best we can how much food we're going to need. We usually buy extra anyway, so there'll probably be enough for you. I'll be willing to give you my sub. I could uh, I can miss a few meals and still live, it appears. So, uh, but we would rather we really would like to have you all here. So even if you didn't register, uh, plan to come tonight at uh, 4:30 for our servants seminar. Today we are going to end this uh, series, and we're going to have to hustle to go through the remaining notes to do that. But the reason we're ending it is because. On our calendar, two weeks from today, April the 7th, we start a new series. That new series, uh, the title is in your program, but it's called Stolen Identity, and the subtitle is, Who Does God Say I Really, Really Am? So we want to take six weeks in that series to look at that topic from uh, God's Word. So be aware of that. Think about somebody that perhaps you can invite to that. And uh, we've got some printed invitations that we're going to have available for you next week to use to invite someone to that. So we'll end our series on biblical worldview today. Two weeks from today, we will start that new series. And next week, we will not have the Discovering God Hour, the Sunday School Hour at all. On Easter next week, we will simply have our refreshment time at 1030 and then one service, our worship service, from 11 to approximately noon on Easter. And one final announcement, and that is that uh, this coming Saturday is a celebration of the 50th wedding anniversary for Ron and Sue Biggs. And it'll be right here at the uh, Ministry Center. It's going to be from 2 to 5, and it is an open house drop-in format. So anytime between those hours, uh, come by and celebrate with uh, Ron and Sue their 50th wedding anniversary. And the entire, all of y'all are invited to that. All y'all are invited to that. That's my... That's my Pikevillian, Kentucky uh, accent coming out. But these invitations are available at the Information Center to give you a reminder for the time and the occasion, all right? All right, we've been looking at uh, worldview issues. And we have seen throughout these now uh, nine weeks together, this will be the 10th, that uh, worldview means exactly as the word suggests, the way you view everything, the way you view the world. And the Bible provides a way to view everything. 
And so we want to have a biblical worldview, thus the title of the, of the series, Biblical Worldview 101. But we've been saying throughout this series that viewing everything could not be a larger topic. And so in order to get your arms around that, you have to, you have to structure the material in some way. And we've chosen to structure it in three major categories, that a biblical view of the world involves three major things. It involves an orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. The orientation involves God, who He is, and His uh, creation and purpose for what He has created. So in orientation, God creates, and He gives the first man and woman an orientation to His world. He tells them about Himself, about themselves, and what He requires of them. Disorientation is the entrance of sin into God's good world. The world to which they were oriented by God becomes distorted and disoriented because of sin, and it affects every aspect of life. It affects the physical environment. It affects their relationships with one another on a horizontal level. It affects their relationship most profoundly with with God on a vertical level. So orientation and disorientation, creation and fall. And then the third category is the one that we are in now, and that is reorientation. The good news is that God has not left us in that fallen state and His world in that fallen state, but rather God is actively engaged in reorienting His world to its original purpose. And what we have been attempting to do now for the last few weeks, and we'll finish off today, is looking at how God is doing that, reorienting His world. Now, the page that I ask you to turn to, page 20, is actually... Uh, lesson 8 of, uh, of 10. So I set aside 10 Sundays to go through 10 lessons. This is the 10th Sunday, and we're in Lesson 8. So we're going to, we're going to have to hassle, or hustle. <laughs> and the good news is we are partway through Lesson 8, and much of what's said in Lessons 9 and 10 are things that you've heard from, from me in other uh, forums. So hang on, because we're going to have to go, go rather quickly. But because of disorientation, something is wrong that requires reorienting. And we have seen that God begins that reorientation with changing the way we think. In order for us to come to a relationship with God, He has to do a work upon our minds to turn the light on so that we see differently Him, ourselves, and His world. No one can come to Christ until that work is done by God, that He turns the light on and their thinking is, is changed with regard to God, with regard to themselves, and with regard to, with regard to the world. And so this reorientation begins with a renewal of, of the mind. God calls us out of the world and to Himself, and His Holy Spirit moves upon the mind of an individual so that they see themselves clearly, their need for Christ as Savior clearly, and that embarks them now on a, a gradual, lifelong, every moment of every day, setting apart from the world and to God because there's something wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? It's a disoriented. What are the implications of that disorientation? You'll have to listen to the recordings. From that, from that session. But there's something wrong with the world. God calls people out of the world unto Himself, and He is regularly renewing their mind so that we see a stark difference between what God's original design was and what God's desires are and what we engage in in the world, what we see in the world. We see this stark difference. We see an antithesis 
between what God says in Scripture that is true and the propositions with which we are presented on a regular basis in the world. So that we have to uh, engage in discernment. And we saw in lesson number seven that discernment, distinguishing God's ways from all others, is something that Christians are called to do in this reorienting process as our minds are, are renewed. And this goes on throughout our lives as God reorients us individually. And He is reorienting His world corporately and His church corporately as, as well. But it begins with us in, individually. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us how it is that God is renewing our minds, the tool that He uses in order for us to see ourselves, see God, and see His world in a radically different way. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You remember that Jesus, in the prayer on the night that He prayed to the Father, the night before He died, prays for His first followers, the apostles, and then He prays for those who are going to believe because of their message. That would include us, even 2,000 years later. So Jesus issues this prayer, and in that prayer he says, They, my followers, are not of the world just as I am not of the world. They are in the world but not of the world. And then he says in the midst of that prayer, John chapter 17 and verse 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now that sanctify them word means make them different. Make them set apart. Make them holy. How is that going to happen, says Jesus? By your truth, where is your truth found? Your word is truth. So here in Second Timothy now, chapter 3, we have the great apostle Paul speaking of Scripture and its effect in, in doing that very thing, in setting people apart, in calling people out, in making them different. Verse 14, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. And have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, the Word, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So where does it start? It starts there. Sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. But that involves first an initial deliverance, rescue, salvation. And how does that rescue, deliverance, salvation come? It comes through knowledge of, of the Word, the Holy Scriptures. But then God doesn't leave it there. God calls us out of the world in His reorientation project by the central message of the Scriptures, the Gospel. He rescues us, but then He engages in a daily, every moment of every day, renovation project. So it's not then just salvation, it's this other fancy word, sanctification. And how does that happen? It also happens through the Word. So we are saved through the agency of the Holy Spirit using His Word. And we are sanctified by continually learning God's Word and making application of it to our lives. Now where do we see that? Second Timothy 3 then. So the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation and verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for
for every good work, which brings us then to page 21 in your notes. The bottom of page 21 is where we've left off, and we see that God's renovation project in us, using His Word, after we have come in initial salvation, has these four steps that are given in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. And I pointed out last week that those are in a logical sequence. You cannot, you cannot reverse those and have those make any sense. The third one in that list is correcting. But you can't correct until you know what needs to be corrected. And that's actually what the second one is about, rebuking. But you're not rebuked until you are first confronted with the truth. You are first taught. And so these are in a logical sequence. We are taught. Having been taught, we're rebuked. Having been rebuked, we can then see what needs to be corrected. And then God's Word gives us, uh, gives us instructions about how to develop habits of discipline, training, in righteousness. Those four things. So beginning at the bottom of page 21, we have those four steps. Step one is teaching, a confrontation with the truth. And it's the content of the Word that is the catalyst for change. As we saw at the end of last week, the Bible acts as a mirror, according to James chapter 1, which we have quoted for you at the top of the next page. And in that mirror, God shows us ourselves. And God is able to show us ourselves in a, in a most penetrating and exhaustive way because He is an omniscient God. He's the God who made us and He knows us better than we know ourselves. And this God has written a book. And He tells us about ourselves. And that's why Scripture can say of Scripture, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. And that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, how can God do that? How can God write a book, the last book of which was written 2,000 years ago, that searches and judges the thoughts and intents of, people, of the hearts of people living in 2013? How can He do that? Because He's an omniscient God. And He knows you, and He knows what you need, and He knows what I need. And so God has given us His Word to act in this, this, this way. And His Word tells us everything we need to know about His purposes for us and pleasing Him in those purposes. That's what we say at the top of page 22. The content of the Word is exhaustive. The Bible doesn't address every issue directly, but it does address every issue either in precept or principle, directly or indirectly. And that's why 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is useful so that, verse 17, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good, good work. So the first step that we saw last week is a confrontation with the truth. We are taught the content of Scripture. But then that leads to the second step, and I call it conviction here. And I say there because the word translated rebuke is translated elsewhere as conviction. And that is that involves now the clash of our sin, having looked in the mirror and seeing ourselves clearly from God's standpoint, this, there's now a clash between who I am and what I'm supposed to be, sin and righteousness. And that's what we mean by then conviction. Conviction is the result of having been confronted with the truth. The Bible exposes our sins, even going down to the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. And this is absolutely necessary because of number two, middle of the page. Because of the noetic effects of sin. Yikes. What is that? Well, noetic effects of sin, that comes from a Greek word translated mind. Nous is the Greek word that's translated mind 
in your New Testament. And so noetic effects of sin are the effects of sin on the mind, the effects of sin on the way, on the way we think. So Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful, the heart in Scripture being the seed of the person, mind, will, emotion, and deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? Romans 8, the sinful mind is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can, can it do so. And then Paul goes on to say likewise in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And so we need to be confronted with the truth because sin affects us in such a way as we don't think rightly. And so we have to have this right thinking given in God's Word, in Scripture, presented to us. It becomes a confrontation because there's a stark difference between the way God thinks and the way we think, and that then results in conviction. Bottom of page 22, conviction is an objective thing, not a subjective thing. Contrary to popular opinion, conviction is not a matter of feelings. Rather, it's a legal term used to denote the prosecution of a case against one who has broken the law. Now, you say popular opinion. Whose popular opinion is it? That conviction is primarily a matter of feelings. Well, you know, I went to a, uh, I was blessed to go to a Christian high school and graduate from there. And uh, blessed to grow up in a Christian home and in a pastor's home. Uh, But as I was growing up, much was said to me as a teenager about the need to develop convictions. I don't know if you all have heard that phrase, but you you need to develop convictions. And the problem for me as a teenager was I knew people who had convictions. And they were miserable. So convictions to me as a teenager was like contracting a disease. Do you have convictions? See a doctor right away. So it really, it, and what it, what it amounted to were the things that an individual had decided that, that, they, should not, that they should not engage in. And uh, they were often, as I say, very, very miserable people. So it wasn't just, I think something might be wrong, but rather it has a more objective basis. Conviction is used as we know it in our legal system. That someone is convicted because they've broken, they've broken the law objectively. Now, what's the objective law that we are measured against? It is nothing other than, than the Scriptures themselves. And so, what do the Scriptures say about what my thoughts ought to be, what my attitudes ought to be, what my actions ought to be? And when I compare what they actually are with that, I'm convicted. I've broken God's law. Now, if God puts a period after that in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is useful, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, or conviction, period, well, we're a miserable lot, aren't we? But thankfully, in this logical sequence, God does not leave it there, but rather He goes on to say that there's a third step, correction, that God's Word gives us the answer to the conviction. The Bible does not leave us in our guilt, top of page 23, after conviction. Rather, it provides instruction by which the wrong can be made right. And the word translated correction means to cause to stand. Now, that assumes that something has previously fallen. So there's the rebuke, there's the conviction, there's the, there's the, the, the failure, the sin, but then God doesn't leave us there. He causes to stand that which has previously fallen. How does he do that? We have passages like Ephesians chapter 4 
that are replete with commands to put off certain kinds of thoughts and words and, and actions and to put on other thoughts and words and actions. So the Bible tells us to, to put off certain things, but God is not, contrary to the way we can, we can uh, come to think, God is not satisfied if we simply refrain from the wrong thing. But God requires positive holiness from us, positive righteousness from us. So we get the idea that as long as I stay away from bad stuff, then I'm living in a way that's pleasing to God. But God says it's not simply don't do these things, it's replace those things with positive, righteous things in your life. That's the put on part. And God's Word gives us the content of that correcting, causing to stand, put off the sinful behavior, but don't, it's, it's not a vacuum, it's not neutral. You don't just stop doing that, you replace that with righteous behavior. So put on the new self, verse 24 of Ephesians 4, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we've got struggles in our lives. The Word of God points those out to us, acting as a mirror a clash of sin and righteousness that results in conviction. The Bible doesn't leave us there. It gives us instruction for how to correct, cause to stand. But then God desires that that be an ongoing discipline of life. And that's the fourth item in that list in verse 16. Training in righteousness. And I say in the middle of page 23 that the word translated training is the word in Scripture for discipline. And this suggests that the habits of godliness require effort and, and work. Godly discipline requires the work of being constantly exposed to the Word of God. And so Colossians chapter 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you, make its home in you, settle, settle down, as I say below there, to be at home. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude, in your hearts to God. So the Word cannot have its dwelling, make its home, settle down in us unless we have a regular intake of God's Word. But I want you to notice something else about Colossians 3.16. It speaks of us doing this in community. It speaks of us doing this with other people. Did you all see that? You let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish whom? One another. So the idea that you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit are contractors for Jesus as lone rangers is not biblical. Now, I trust you get that because you showed up. And you're with other people. But in Scripture, the assumption is over and over again, over 60 times in Scripture, a Greek word, alelone, translated one another, is used. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. Love one another. That means that this growth process that's to occur through the Word of God is a community project. And so it takes place as we engage one another, as we help one another, uh, as we pray for one another and fulfill all of those commands. And think of it another way. If you're not engaged in relationship with other believers, then you are disobeying over 60 commands of the New Testament that tell you what it is we're supposed to do with one another. So, you know, church is not just, you know, something pastors made up. 
I mean, people say this kind of stuff. I don't believe in, you know, man-made religion. I don't need church to have a relationship with God. Well, let's just do this. Let's just see if God wrote a book. He did. Let's see what he says in the book about how he wants Christians to grow. And he makes quite clear in his book that the church was his idea and that growth is a community project. And so it may sound fine to us, and in the next universe, when you're God of the universe, you can make it that way. But God has made it this way that we grow in community. So godly discipline requires constant exposure to the Word. That is a community project. And then godly discipline requires regular study of and meditation on the Word. This is how habits of correct behavior are established. As we learn God's Word, and then we meditate, we think about God's Word. And we think about how what we learn applies to the world in which we live. And as you do that, as you regularly intake God's Word, as you regularly discuss it with one another, as you are iron sharpens iron, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, and as that sharpening process takes place, you begin to see applications of God's Word in our world that you wouldn't have necessarily seen by, by yourself. And you, you study it and you think about it. You think about it on your own, but you think about it in community and in conversation with, with others as well. And as a result of that, these, this discipline training in righteousness, the habits of correct behavior are developed in the life of a believer. So God's involved in this reorientation project. That reorientation project means the renewal of the way we think. And the tool that he uses to change our perspective and the way we think is the Word of God. The Word of God that teaches us, convicts us, corrects us, and, and trains us. Now, we've got lessons 9 and 10. You guys just want to quit? We could just quit. I'm not, I'm not putting that to a vote, as a matter of fact. But the good news is I've covered some of this already. So if you'll turn to page 24, I can go through fairly quickly and just highlight some things. But lesson 9 is finding out what is right with it. So as I am reoriented out of the disorientation caused by sin, gradually and daily. It means the renewing of my mind through the application of, of Scripture. And I have to make decisions about things I'm going to do and things I'm not going to do. And that's what this lesson is about now. I learn God's Word and I seek to apply the principles and precepts that I find there to the circumstances that He has placed me, me in. And that, in turn, then guides my decision-making about the things I will do and the things I will not do. So I say on page 24, here are the problems that confront a believer in trying to make God-honoring decisions. And one is just that we're living in a fallen world. But we talked about that, and we talked about these four approaches to living in a fallen culture previously. So our messages are online. If you weren't here for those, you can listen to those. But here's another, here's another problem that we haven't discussed, and that is, bottom of page 24, the danger of legalism. What is that? It is, technically, it is the belief that our justification is a matter of what we do, or working for salvation. That's what, that's what legalism is. And the Bible is clear that we're not saved, that we are saved not by what we do, but by believing what Christ has done. In addition, it's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. 
And these two issues have caused many to dismiss the need for rules and standards of, of behavior. So, one, we want to avoid giving the impression that we think that we're saved, uh, that, that we have a relationship with God because of what we do. Okay? And we don't have our relationship with God because of what we do, because of what Christ has done. But because that's true, some people then say, I don't want to have any rules or standards in my life that make it look like I think I'm right with God because of that stuff. Okay, so that's one wrong reaction to that issue. And then the other one uh, is because uh, we know that it's very easy to be hypocritical in what we do, that we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And so simply having a list of standards or things that I'm going to do and not do, we know does not in itself please God because I not only need to do the right thing, but I need to do it for the right reasons. And since it's very possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons, some people just chuck the whole exercise. And what I'm suggesting here is both of those are wrong approaches to take. The proper approach, last sentence, is to develop rules and standards, now notice this, for ourselves without seeing them as a means of salvation or descending into Phariseeism. The Pharisees looked very good on the outside, but they were rotting corpses on the inside, Jesus said. And so, but you can, you can, you can have, develop rules for yourself, standards for yourself that you don't see as a means to your relationship with God and that you don't uh, hypocritically parade before everyone else. But notice I have in italics, I have emphasized, develop these for yourself. And I have a footnote there. But the footnote is important enough that I perhaps should have put it in the body of the paper. Take a look at the footnote. An additional issue with personal rules and standards is that they can quickly cease to be personal. Many seek to impose decisions they've made on others. While such imposition may be appropriate in an authority-submission relationship, so if you're a parent, (laughs) you know, Stop negotiating with your kid, okay? I mean, they get older. The older they get, the more you consult. I, I get all that. I've got two teenagers. But especially when they're young, you don't have to explain everything and every reason for why you're telling them not to do something, okay? It's good to explain it sometimes so that you're not just an ogre and an authoritarian and a dictator, but it's also good to just tell them, you know, I'm an authority in your life, and here's a good reason for you not to do it because I told you not to do it. I see people with little kids in stores and restaurants all the time, and they're explaining all this stuff to this kid who's continually just screaming, but I want it. They don't care about the reasons at all, right? But we're giving this rational basis. It all sounds good. You would get an A on that paper that you are developing right now in a class, but just tell the kid, I'm your parent, do what I tell you to do. There are authority submission relationships in which imposition goes, is by its very nature part of the relationship. That's why there is an authority. So that may be appropriate in an authority-submission relationship, but we must be willing to allow others to draw different conclusions than we. And then this last sentence in that footnote is one that I used to teach teenagers back uh, when I was leading teenagers many moons ago. I told my Wednesday night class I had a very difficult period of my life when I was a youth leader. And it was a much more difficult on those youth that I led as well. But did what I could with it. And it 
as part of it, this is one of the principles I used to try to drive home to them. We do not all need to arrive at the same answers, but we do need to ask the same questions. And so what you and I need to do is regularly intake the Word of God, compare what the Word of God says to what we're considering, contemplating doing, or currently engaged in, and then compare those and ask ourselves some penetrating questions. But do it for ourselves. Ask yourself, is this something that pleases God? Is this something I should be spending God's resources on, His time, the talent He's given me, the treasure He's provided for me? Is this something I should do? Now, you might arrive at different answers to those questions than I do, and that's okay. But we all have to ask the same questions, even if we don't arrive at the same answers. So how do you develop these sort of, um, these, these, uh, these rules of behavior, standards for yourself? Page 25. I again talk about what a, a conviction is. We use the Word of God and its precepts and its principles. We obey the, the, the precepts. The precepts are direct commands of God. So we obey those. So God has direct commands. Not only in the Old Testament, thou shalt not do certain things. You, you will love your neighbor as yourself. These are direct commands, precepts of God that we are to obey. He has them in the New Testament as well. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command. And, and, and God says, husbands, sacrifice yourselves for the good of your wives. That's a command. So that's a precept to be obeyed. Or the writer of Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That's a command. So those are precepts. Those are direct commands of God. And what I need to do with those is obey them. But then there are principles of the word. And what do I do with those? I have to apply them. And here's what I want to offer you with regard to applying the principles of the Word of God. Don't ask, two-thirds of the way down on page 25, don't ask what's wrong with it, ask what's right with it. And that will be a paradigm shift for, for many of us. But when, back when I was doing that youth work, you know, if I had a dime for every time a teenager said, what's, so what's wrong with it? And you know what they mean by that. Show me a verse that says, I can't. Do X. But of course, most of the decisions we have to make are not found in direct precepts in Scripture, but rather are the application of principles from Scripture. And I need to ask myself not what's wrong with it, not can I find a prohibition against it in the pages of Scripture, but rather given the storyline of the Bible and the principles contained in it now, what's right about what I'm, I'm looking to do? How does what I'm doing or contemplating doing help me advance what God teaches in the storyline of the Bible my purpose is to be about? And in so doing, develop your own casuistry. Bottom of page 25. Casuistry, that word means case laws. And so you develop structure for yourself that says, in these instances, this is what I will do. In these cases, this is what I will do, or this is what I will refrain from. God's law is patterned that way. There are laws in the Old Testament that are called apodictic laws, independent of circumstances. They apply in all places and at all times. 
And then there are casuistic laws, those that depend on time and circumstances. And as you read the, the law of God, the law of Moses, you'll find these kinds of laws. I mean, thou shalt not steal, right? Which one would that be? That would be an apodictic law. But case laws are found throughout. If this happens, if you are plowing your field on a certain day and your donkey breaks his leg or you know, whatever it is, then this is what you're supposed to do. Those are cases. If in this circumstance this happens, then this is what you do. And following that pattern, we develop then cases for ourselves. Now, I've given you a list of principles from Scripture on page 26. To ask yourself, these are principles. To ask yourself about what you're doing or about what you're considering doing in order to make a decision as to whether or not this would be something that pleases, pleases God. Now, they all start with an E, which means that a preacher put those together. But they are sound principles from Scripture. And if you ask these, I think there are ten of them there, these, these ten things of yourself for what you're doing, it will be probing for you if you take it seriously. It may mean the modification or the elimination of things that you are doing in your life. It may mean certain things you are contemplating doing you will not do because they violate these principles. All right, lastly, lesson 10, page 27. And there's a bunch of pages there. It goes all the way to page 31. Actually, page 33. However, I can summarize what's here in our remaining five minutes. So God is involved in this reorientation project, and He is renewing the minds of those that He has called out of the world and to Himself, changing the way we think, the way we see God, ourselves, and the world. That happens by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God on the mind of those who have been awakened to God's truth in salvation. Now, that's a regular process. That's an ongoing, lifelong process, as we've seen. And God, in turn, desires to use those people whom He is individually changing to now be change agents in His world. And that's what Lesson 10 is about. In God's reorientation project, He is not only interested in you personally and individually growing into Christ's likeness. He's obviously interested in that. It obviously has to start there. But God then wants that maturity to now be channeled into service so that you use what God has given you in order to see others brought into this reorientation project. And that's what lesson number 10 then is about, on a mission from God. God has given us collectively together a mission to carry out. Now, most of us are familiar with the Great Commission. Jesus' final words to his first followers I have for you on page 27. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, here's what I want to show you as quickly as I can on those next couple pages. If most of us were asked to give a statement of the Great Commission, we would probably quote Matthew 28. 
But what many of us don't know is that the Great Commission is given in at least two other places. And I have listed for you there Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1 and, and verse 8. And in, each of, in, and in each of those, we are given additional information about the mission. Matthew 28 says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them. Luke 24 tells us that as you go and you preach to all nations, making disciples, here's going to be the content of what you're going to preach. Luke 24 says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So that's Jesus, again, giving final instructions to his first followers, but he gives some additional information. You're not only going to baptize and teach them, here's what you're going to teach them, that they need to repent and uh, receive forgiveness of sins through Christ. And Luke 24 tells us a sec another thing that Matthew 28 did not. Namely, Luke says, Jesus told them, stay in the city until you receive power from on high. And so, Luke ends. And where do we find those first followers of Jesus after Jesus ascends back to heaven? We find them in the city. What city is that? Jerusalem. They go back to, they go to Jerusalem. And they wait to begin this mission. And the next time you find them is in Acts chapter 1. In the book of Acts chapter 1, it tells us that they were all gathered there. And what are they doing? They are waiting. And they're waiting to begin this mission to go to all nations, to baptize them and teach them. And the content of that teaching is going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then as they've been waiting for about a week, there's a whole calculation that goes with that, but just take my word for it. They've been there about a week. And then Acts chapter 2 says the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they received this power now to begin this mission. And it's a weird setup. People are speaking in languages that they never learned. Acts chapter 2 tells us gathered in Jerusalem were people from every nation under heaven. Why is that important? Because this mission is going to go to how many nations? All nations. And it's starting now in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost when you have all these people from all over the world and they're speaking in these languages that they never learned and these people are hearing it and they're understanding it. So there's this miraculous thing going on and they've received this power now. And it's weird enough that somebody's got to explain what's going on. So in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, the Bible says Peter stood up and he began to explain. And he explains all the way down to verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. In verse 37, here's what the Bible says. When they heard this, they said, brothers, what shall we do? And in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, here's what Peter says. Be baptized, every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins. He starts actually verse 38 with uh, another command that we've heard just recently from Luke 24. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now notice in that one verse what's all there. Matthew says the Great Commission is going to be baptism. It's there. Luke says the Great Commission is going to involve preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's there. The Great Commission starts in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Now, why do you care about that? And how do you fit into that? Here's why. There's another thing that starts at exactly the same time. Anybody know what it is? The church starts. 
the mission starts and the church started exactly the same time. And the pages that follow in your notes show that symmetry between the Great Commission and the church. And you do not, now hear this, you do not have the one without the other. The entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts is documenting that the Great Commission moves forward as the church moves forward and as churches are multiplied. So how do you fit into that? God has given us a mission. God has given us a mission to advance His glory in His world by carrying out the Great Commission through His church. And you fit into that church. And you are to be a part, an integral part of that church, using the gifts and abilities that God has given you to partner shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters who have likewise been called out of the world and to God in order to advance His fame in His world. And that's why on the final few pages, if you look at verse, page 31, so what do we do? Page 31, under Roman numeral 3, the primary mission of the church and therefore of the church is, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, gather believers into local churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. That's what you read in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. That's exactly what was happening. And so what do I got to do? What do you got to do? And the next couple of pages are about middle of page 31, life principles that we need to apply in our lives in order to structure our lives around this reorientation mission that God has given to each of us. Now, I wish I had time to go through those, but I don't. So you'll need to read those on your own. But the gist of it is this. I've got to use what God has given me. You've got to use what God has given you for the purpose for which he gave it. And what's the purpose for which he gave it? To carry out his mission in his world through his church. That's how his reorientation project is happening. Now tonight at 4.30, that's why we have a servant seminar to talk about how we together can move that mission forward. If you, weren't a, if you didn't attend last week, uh, I encourage you to attend. If you're not a member of our church, you're welcome to attend so that you can see what we have planned coming up for the next year and the next few years, okay? Let's ask the Lord's blessing and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for these weeks that we've been able to have together to focus our attention upon a view of the world that comes from you, the only true view of your world, comes from your word provided to us for our benefit from you. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to grope in darkness, to guess at what our purpose is, but you have told us very clearly what your mission for us is in your world. And you've shown us very clearly in your word how that is to be carried out. Help us, Lord, to see it as the great privilege that it is. Help us to see, Lord, that you don't need any of us to carry out your work. You could have chosen to carry out your work in any number of ways, but you have deigned to allow us to be active participants in that and to experience the joy of seeing people called out of the world into yourself, out of the disoriented, distorted world that's immersed in the consequences of the fall, and to see them come into your light and to be reoriented to what they were intended to be. And you let us be active participants in that. Thank you, Lord.
I pray that every brother and sister here would see that as the great and joyous calling that it is. And that this would be an occasion for us to evaluate whether or not we are structuring our lives in a way to maximize what you have given for the purpose for which you have given it. We ask you to go with us this week as we carry out your mission in the mission fields to which you have called each of us individually in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Grant us safety until next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.